Hello, this is Politics in the Humanities, a podcast from American University. Uh, I'm Tom Merrill. I'm here with Sarah Marsh, uh, my colleague from the Department of Literature. Um, we are going to be discussing Pride and Prejudice and uh, the problem of self-knowledge and self-deception today. Um, before I get started, I should say that uh, if you want to comment or if you have a reaction, please send it to us at Politics and the Humanities uh, in one word uh, at gmail.com. And we'd love to get your responses and hear what you think. And, and if you ask us a question, we'll try to respond to it on a future episode. Um, but, uh, but we're here to talk about uh, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen. And Sarah, you, you teach this book. Is that right? I do. I teach it uh, every year. I think I've, I've probably read it every year since, since I was in graduate school. And I have a lot of ideas about this book um, and delighted to get to talk with it talk with you about it today. So I uh, confess that I have never taught this book. Uh, I think I read it once back when I was in college and I thought that it was a, a soap opera <laughs> and, uh, and never returned to it. <laughs> so I, I think your, your first job, uh, you know, the, uh, as, as coming from a political science world, this, this looks like a lot of, um, uh, you know, mere interpersonal interactions, I guess you might say. Mm -hmm. So uh, is, is, am I wrong about that? Just a little. Uh, so that's a dominant view. That was a, a reading of Austin that held sway for a very long time. And when I teach this book, we talk about that a lot. The idea that folks who have read Pride and Prejudice or seen any of the film adaptations are, are taught by the popular culture to understand Austin as chiclet or you know, is, is, a, is a great romance. And, and I think there's, there's plenty of material in the books to support those kinds of readings. But I also tell them that you know, Austin was a savvy observer of social and political relationships. Uh, and one of the things that, that we try to do in the classes I teach is to sort of put those ideas together and to, to think about the ways Austin uh, is a political thinker and is uh, afforded really interesting opportunities by the novel to to explore contemporary politics in Britain. So you think that she's she's uh, taking sort of a pre-existing form, or maybe a form that that you know came to be after she was writing, but sort of the romantic novel and doing something more with it than than simply uh, entertainment or escapism. I think that's right, and she is really interested. Uh, in the political economy of marriage and, and what that means for these, these groups of families that she studies so closely in her fiction. And, you know, when I teach Pride and Prejudice, the two terms that I always uh, teach my students are first, uh, the idea of primogeniture, which is the idea in early modern Britain and, and before uh, that, that property, landed property, passed intact from father to oldest son. And, and that's how you keep these, these big landed estates together. Uh, and then the other term I teach my students uh, is something called coverture, uh, which is an old Roman law, um, which basically said that a woman's legal personhood was covered by her husband or by her father until her marriage. And then her personhood legally was subsumed under the legal personhood of her husband. And so this, this, is, this is the scenario as it were um, before feminism, before right. the, but what, and what, whichever kind of variety of feminism we're talking about before even liberal feminism. That's right. right. And, and this in large part was, was what the early feminists were reacting against. So, you know, someone like uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, who wrote a lot about the education system in Britain and was thinking about how, um, how women were oppressed by different education systems, was writing essentially out of this same society that Austen is writing about. Wollstonecraft is a little bit older than Austen, uh, but right. she's writing out of the same frame. Yeah, I know some of the students in, in um, the Roots of Political Economy class are reading Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who's about a century later, right. but who's very much about how the economic substructure of, of marriage really distorts human life, right? Obviously for women, but, but also in some ways for men. 
Right. Um, and I, and I think that, you know, that's a nice angle um, to think through. And one that I really encourage my students to consider is that this is a system that creates all sorts of difficulties for women, while it also creates all sorts of difficulties for men um, and all, all sorts of, of obstacles to self-knowledge. And I think, you know, in large part, that's, that's what Pride and Prejudice is helping us to think through. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you, as I read the novel, right, it's easy to get wrapped up in the, in the, what you might call the soap opera dimension of it, because it is so entertaining and, mm-hmm. and it's fun and there are, you know, surprises. Um, but that the, the picture that she's showing us, um, and, you know, one, one shouldn't assume that simply because she's writing about this, that she's endorsing the institu- institutions that she's portraying. Right. In fact, quite the contrary, that, that, you know, the deeper message might be, well, human lives are messed up in these particular ways because of these institutions. Well, and that's the thing, right? The crisis that, that kicks off the novel is that the Bennets don't have a son. That is the whole rising action. There would, you know, there would be no Pride and Prejudice if the Bennets had a boy. And, right. and that, I think, is why the novel is this really useful tool that Austin uses to really excavate these family relationships in relationship to these, you know, big legal institutions. Um, and she's really using the book to, to, you know, mediate how do our social relationships work when we've got these big systems that are in large part completely out of our hands. Yeah. Darn it. If we could only, uh, you know, pick the gender of our children, Uh, or control which children we were able to be born, then we we wouldn't have any of these problems, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, The the old thing in Plato's Republic, right? That you can't really control the city until you can control, uh, until you have some kind of eugenics system. Uh, Right. And Austin, Austin cannot control the, the way wealth is, is um, organized in her society um, without, you know, exactly what you say or changes to the law that are, you know, way beyond uh, the the end of her own life. Right, right, right. Um, so let me make sure that I understand the, the basic uh, scope of the story. Mm-hmm. And then and then I, I have some some things I want to ask you about because, you know, just having reread this for the first time in a while. Um, it looks to me like there are three basic episodes in this book. Uh-huh. Um, that, and I guess some editions have three different volumes, but mine didn't, didn't have the volume. So I had to you know, try to figure things out for myself, but there, uh, the, the main character, Elizabeth, um, gets proposed to three times in this book. That's right. right. And, and, and there, there, you can sort of see each episode as having that, you know, the, one of those proposals as it's the central event. Uh-huh. Right. So the, the first one is this character, uh, Mr. Collins, who is a, a reverend, a, a minister. That's correct? right. Um, and also the heir to the Bennett fortune, um, right. which is convenient. Um, she rejects him. And then in the second, in the second episode, Mr. Darcy, who of course is the, the male lead of this, um, proposes to her and she rejects him. That's right. Uh, um, and then eventually with a lot of things and, you know, happening along the way in the, in the third section, he proposes again and she accepts him. That's right. That's the basic structure of the story. Mm-hmm. That's the big arc. That's the big arc. Um, and, you know, so a full interpretation, you have to try to think through, you know, what, why does she accept or not accept? What does she learn about herself? What does she learn about the world as, as she's going through that? Um, but, and maybe we should talk especially about um, the Mr. Collins proposal, because it's so deliciously horrible. Um, yes. that's, uh... <laughs> there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's an article that I ask my students to read uh, whenever we, we, consider this part of the book and it's a it's by a scholar named ruth perry and the title is sleeping with mr collins and it's, <laughs> it's entirely that doesn't sound like fun sorry it's entirely cringeworthy everybody sort of groans when i when i tell them the title of this article that i'm going to, have to read. Well, um, and that's the point of a good title right is to uh, right. make everybody go yeah that's right so um so yeah let's let's uh let's talk about mr collins well, can we, before we before we do that, can we? I, I just so one thing that I'm just struck by as I read this is um, the the concept of writing by subtext. Uh-huh. 
Yes. That, uh, that, that um, you know, so during the pandemic, my children and I have been um, watching this TV show, The Office, that you, you probably know, you know from mm-hmm. many years ago. And, uh, and there's always a scene in which the main character, uh, Michael Scott, is giving, in almost every episode, there's a scene in which the main character is kind of yakking on and, and giving some completely ridiculous speech. And, and there's always some other character who looks straight at the camera. And there's sort of a moment of, you know, um, intimacy between the character and the viewer that, you know, boy, isn't this ridiculous, <laughs> right? Um, and, I, and I feel like Austin does that without quite having a character who's going to look straight at the camera, that, that she says things. And if you read it quickly, it seems to mean one thing. But if you, if you read it slowly, you start to realize that she's being sarcastic or that she undercuts it immediately mm-hmm. and that there's a subtext that is closer to what she really thinks about the, about the thing that, that you have to do some thinking in order to, to get to. And it occurred to me, if you could, if you could go through and, and as it were, highlight the subtext, make the mm-hmm. subtext, the text, uh-huh. right. You might actually come up with a quite different impression of the book. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. Than you would, if you just thought that it were, you know, just another soap opera. Yes. Um, and so I thought maybe would would you help me? Uh, I want to I want to uh, have some thoughts about the first the opening lines of the book. Oh yeah, let's do it. Um, would you mind reading? Not at all. Okay, here it is. Volume one, chapter one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered as the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. So on the, on the first sort of go round, it looks as though you have this heroic male figure striding onto the scene. Mm-hmm. Right, who's the focus of attention? Uh-huh. That's what, and 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 that it seems to be somehow an assertion of um, right, there's an assertion of universality that that this is sort of the the uh, the paradigm story that in in human life right is that the male shows up and you know he's he's going to find a wife. Right. Um, who who do you think is speaking in that first line? <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, the analogy to the office is so smart. Tell your kids how how brilliant uh, uh, they are at Austin Scholarship, um, <laughs> because you know the the camera work is the way the narrator works in these you know in in what Austin is doing here, right? It's a kind of like roving eyeball that that can zoom in and have intimacy with some characters, even sometimes get inside of their their subjectivity. Uh, yeah. But I think what we've got here, like this, is the big if we were watching a film, right, or we were watching this on television, this would be the the big wide camera angle, right? And then it would it would it would slowly zoom in to the families that we're about to meet. Um, but this view, right, this narrator's framing of of the whole novel, um, is is the you know is the big scene of of the whole human experience, as you said, Tom, right? That there's there's a man. Um, and, and traditionally, like men with fortunes need wives, right? That's the, that's the abstraction. And then everything that follows is the sort of detail that, that unfolds the particularity of, of the, the problems um, and, and you know, what we can accomplish or not through that system. Well, but but I was I was thinking simply slightly different. I mean, because, um, well, number one, the thing that's so striking about it is how passively it's phrased. Uh Yeah, it's almost completely anonymous. It's not I mean, I was thinking about alternative ways that you could have written the sentence. And one of them might be um, because, you know, the the speaker, the obvious answer is the speaker is Jane Austen. Uh And Jane Austen could have said, um, I have uh, observed that when a man moves into a neighborhood that all the families around Uh are immediately marrying them off, marrying him off in their minds. Um, But that would be a difference. That would be a more honest sentence. But it wouldn't say exactly what I think she's trying to say. Yeah. That there's something about the anonymity of it is a, a truth universally acknowledged. Yeah. That strikes me as really important. Um, and then the other thing that I that I thought you you tell me what, what you think about this, but um, you know we talked about John Stuart Mill and the idea of social tyranny of the majority. Mm-hmm. I think that's what this is, right? I think you know the definition of social tyranny of the majority is 
it's a social construction that we have naturalized and that we we never think to even question yeah that we think that it's as natural as gravity or you know the stars you know going around the earth um, yeah you know in the in the night or whatever um but this this is a truth that that is a highly contingent truth that has been elevated into um what seems to be a law of nature yeah right? yeah that's right um, um and in in that sense right i mean the book becomes kind of like a sort of like a a proof or disproof of you know of the general principle um that it is it is a truth universally acknowledged right and no but and that and that and she's going to undercut it in in many different ways right and and part of the, the the funniness of the line is that it turns out not to be quite true right right and and even even as as early as the the second line right however little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighborhood, it's clear that that we're not seeing this from the point of view of the man in question. That's right. Right. That 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 we're expressing the point of view of the observers of the man in question. Yeah. And yeah. we learn pretty quickly, right? That 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 um, this is basically the view of Mrs. Bennett, right? This is this is sort of the conventional view of you know, um, you know, Heidegger has this phrase in Being in Time. Sorry to bring in you know less attractive things, but uh, uh, Das Mann. Which mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, people sometimes translate as the they, yeah. Uh, and the idea is that there's kind of a conventional wisdom that that determines our lives, and we have never reflected on it. And you say, yeah. well, who's the authority for this this opinion you have? And yeah. all you can say is, well, that that's you know, that's what they say. That's right? what they say. Yeah. Literally, that's what they say. Uh-huh. Well, who are these they? I don't know. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, but I think what's really happening here is this is um, this is an expression of the desire. Um, of the families and maybe in particular of the women in the families. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it looks like this is a story about this heroic male figure, but the heroic male figure is actually a projection of female desire. Yeah. And the, and the, the different forms that that desire takes, right. Because there's, you know, there's the sort of like sexual attraction dimension that, that we sort of right. go through first when we talk about desire. Uh, but Mrs. Bennett has desires in this novel that, that really direct a lot of the action um, or, you know, or part of the comic relief, depending on how you situate her. And, and she is, you know, a really you know, interesting um, uh, expositor of, of these sort of like socially held views or these, she's the mouthpiece for them. Correct. Yes. Across yes. at least the first two volumes. And then she, she sort of quiets down. Um, after the other voices start to hold more sway in the text. Well, as, as Elizabeth begins to assert herself more that on some deep level, there's kind of a struggle between Mrs. Bennett and, and Elizabeth. Yeah. And the generational break that Austin orchestrates um, between <clears throat> the, the older Bennett's right. Mr. <clears throat> Pardon me, Mr. And Mrs. Bennett, right. Who we learn over the course of the novel, uh, you know, are not a good model of marriage and that her daughters have, Mrs. Bennett's daughters have never been able to respect her. Um, and that is, it is their father who has exposed their mother to the, you know, the ridicule or the disdain of the children, right? There's this yes. weird intergenerational problem that Austin is talking about. And it is, I think the source of that problem is this collective social knowledge about what it means to be married, which is which is a in the in the long run is a debilitating social knowledge. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the the novel is designed, I think, to transcend. Right. I mean, I just one more point on this on these first couple of lines. I mean, if if what's really being done here is um, is female desire or female eros, um, which you know Austin is a pretty buttoned up writer, right? There's you know there are few. Um, hints of sexuality in the, in the thing, but um, it, you know, it just looks to me like uh, somehow desire has projected this figure of this, this heroic male who's going to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is that, that as the, in the, the second line, right, that it's clear that that male figure is a, is unknown, right. Mm-hmm. In some important respects that we're not getting any insight into the subjectivity of that person. Yeah. And so there's a there's a level of um, 
you know, female agency is actually the, the thing that's going on here. And that's, yeah. that's important to, to recognize, but there's also a level of lack of self-knowledge, right. Or even self-deception that you've projected your desire into this object, um, that then you then fantasize about, even though it's, it's, you are really the one who's doing somehow doing the work. That's right. Well, and that, uh, again, the, um, the passive voice or the, the like unclear reference of the, the second sentence, however little known the feelings or views of such a man may be. Now, is that to everybody else? Is that to the man himself? Is that right. to his, you know, there's a, there's a, I mean, he might be gay, right? That's right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ambiguity and, you know, queering Austin is, is something the critics have done because of right. the space that's created by the style of, of the art form. Um, Right. She's winking at you and she, she expects you to pick up on that because she expects that you are a person of right, some intelligence. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and to, and to, you know, be able to recognize the tension between the surface and what's underneath the surface and to be able to see what she's doing with it. Right. And I think the other thing that she's working on here really, really quickly, I mean, again, we're, we're in the first few sentences of the whole book uh, that he is considered as the rightful property right. of someone or other of their daughters. I mean, she's she's poking right away at the thing everybody knew, which was that women were were vessels for yeah they were they were themselves property right. Um, you know, men held property interests, um, not saleable ones, but they held property interests in the the sexual bodies of, of their wives and of their daughters. And so, you know, this is a, this is a direct turnabout uh, on that idea um, that again, it, it suggests a level of self-deception about, about the system in which yes. this particular idea circulates. I mean, so if, and now we're, we're, we're getting a lot out of these two lines, but you could say that at least in imagination they're doing to this, mysterious male figure, what in a sense has been done to them. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so in a way that the, the structures of uh, inequality are, are psychic structures of inequality are reproducing themselves. That's right. Um, yeah. As the pretext to this opening dialogue, right? You get the sort of, the sort of like articulation of universal truths, you know, wink, wink, that are not, right. you know, that are not so, <laughs> not so truthy. Uh, and, and then, 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 and then right into the quoted speech of, of the things that are being said. Um, and that's the, I think part of the, the usefulness of, of teaching this book as a, you know, a great text of, the liberal arts tradition is because it helps us tease out the way that individuals, you know, work inside of these, these superstructures. Yeah. And I, I also just say, I mean, I'm partly, and this is the hardest thing to teach when you're, when you're trying to read a book um, with students is, is the ability to see multiple layers at the same time yeah. or to see an image as an image yes. um, or to, or to, um, you know, we're, I think we're about to tape an episode on Aristophanes' clouds, which is mm-hmm. obscene and funny. And and I, I just remember I had a student one time, you know, look at me after you know we started the discussion, and and said, "Is this going to be on the quiz?" <laughs> it's like it's a joke, right? You're supposed to you're supposed to laugh, and then but you, and you're also supposed to somehow connect it to some larger thing, right? Um, that uh, you know, it, it's it's revealing something about the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- but this, to me, that the deep theme of this book is the way that we deceive ourselves, yes. right? Oh. And you see it at work, you know, right off the bat in these first couple of lines. Yes. Um, uh, and I think that that, that, that is connected with the comic aspect. Yes. Right. Yeah. Comedy is funny when we see somebody who thinks they're doing one thing, right? That's why Michael Scott is so funny is because right. he thinks he lives in a world of, of you know, <laughs> that he's imagined and everyone else can see like, you know, you're a fool, you're about to, you know slip on the banana peel. Right. Um, right. And that, I mean, that's what Mr. Bennett says. I think, you know, toward the end of the book, he says, what do we live for, but to make sport for our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn. And, and the sort of, you know, this is, this is part of the, you know, the human comedy, right. That we all take our role as for better or for worse as Michael Scott. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're not all Michael Scott. <laughs> 
Well, my children inform me that I'm the Michael Scott of our household. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm supposed to <laughs> how I'm supposed to feel about that. But <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it sounds like you have some Austin scholars on your hands. <laughs> Um, so shall we, uh, well, I, I can tell you that, you know, my daughter who, who's now 12 read this, I think last year and, mm-hmm. uh, and was revolted at the uh, idea that anyone was going to make her get married to anybody. <laughs> um, so we, you know, <laughs> several wow. days of protest, <laughs> uh, which I, I guess is uh, to be expected. Um, shall we, shall we talk about Mr. Collins speaking, yeah, of, speaking of comic figures? Speaking of, of the, the Michael Scott's of the world. Yeah. How, how would you describe, um, we need to set it up a little bit. How would you describe Mr. Collins? So it's really hard for me to imagine Mr. Collins without thinking of David Bamber's portrayal of him uh, in the in the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Um, so I sort of think of a um, you know a diminutive figure who's you know sort of always bowing and you know undertaking these uh, rituals of deference. And it's interesting, though, in the book, he is described as being a, a tall, um, well-formed figure, right? So he's, oh. he's not the, um, you know, the sycophant that, that David Bamber portrays in the what I think is a well-known film. Um, so, you know, that struck me this time through to think about the ways that, you know, even even Mr. Collins might, might cut some kind of a figure, uh, at least physically. And then he opens his mouth. Um, <laughs> And, 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 you know, gives the lie to, to, to every other, you know, impression. Uh, well, well, we have to also just note, right. So he, he's the heir to the Bennett, to Mr. Bennett's money. That's right. And through, through some weird legal thing, I mean, this is sort of, you know, like the gimmick that makes the whole story work through some weird legal thing. Um, Mr. Bennett can't leave his money to his daughters, which right. would, you would think would be the just thing and the thing that he would want. Right. Um, and so Mr. Collins is going to inherit and, and he thinks, well, since I'm going to inherit, I might as well marry one of the daughters. Right. Um, and so there's, there's already a power differential there. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, when I, I teach this, I, I nerd out momentarily on the legal history, uh, which is that there are, there are lots of different ways you can own land. Um, but the, I would say the two big categories are that you can, uh, earn, you can own an estate, um, in fee simple, which is that, which is, gives you power to, to sell the land, you know, to build things on the land, to, uh, say who's going to inherit the land after your death, or you can own the land in something called fee tail. And I tell my students, those of you who are going to law school are going to see all these terms again, uh, whenever you study right. property law, uh, because our system comes from, from the British system. And that's, that's entail. That, and that's the entail, right? So Mr. Bennett owns his estate in fee tail, and there are some rules about how it can be passed down, right? And someone like Mr. Darcy owns his estate uh, in fee simple. And so, and then there are the folks who live at, who are renting Netherfield, right? The, the Bingleys who don't own land at all, right? Their family is in trade um, and they're new money. So they're renting, right? So these are, and, and Austin's readers would have would have known all of these cues, right? So they could have situated all these people in this like socioeconomic matrix uh, and understand right. their motivations based on, you know, those categories. So anyway, the estate at Longbourn will pass to Mr. Collins after Mr. Bennett dies. And, you know, one of the really delightful comic lines uh, through the whole book is this banter between Mr. and Mrs. Collins about who's going to die first. <laughs> right. Well, that that's, you know, obviously, right, when you know who the heir is going to be, then the heir has uh, a real interest in the person dying, which uh, is, you know, a pretty unpleasant thing that we don't like to talk about. Right. But that's, uh, you know, it's always like he comes over to the house and people think that he's measuring the, the, the window for the curtain. <laughs> yeah, for right. Curtains. Uh, so um, and, and, the, and the other thing that, that strikes me and, and we should we just get into the text, but but um, Mr. Collins uh, is a clergyman. That's right? Right. He's, the, he's the representative of the church in the book. Uh-huh. And he's as, as we learn in the, the quote that we're about to read, he's um, he's tightly connected with this uh, lady, Catherine de Berg. Um, who was the example of the real aristocracy, right? Like the, the landed nobility. That's right. 
and and basically it's a you know if you think about this politically um what's the political message of austin's book i mean lady catherine is pompous and condescending and basically a horrible person and and collins is um somebody who likes kissing up to powerful people right right. uh and so i think the implication is that the the nobility is um completely um you know self-absorbed and oblivious to everyone else in the world and that the Mm -hmm. clergy spends its time kissing up to the nobility and telling them how great they are um that's a that's a pretty uh sort of radical thing to imply i would think that's right and you know when we consider that you know austin's own father um was a clergyman she had a she had some insight into these dynamics uh and you know austin's family was by no means part of the aristocracy uh this was you know undoubtedly something she had an opportunity to observe during her own lifetime and you know, we see the the dichotomy too. Uh, it, it, I think it comes out more strongly in Emma with the character of of George Knightley. But there's also the idea that the aristocracy is good for some things. You know, we have a, you know, a Darcy who is, you know, we hear over and again that he uh, is a good steward to the poor, um, and that he, you know, that he takes care of his, you know, his tenants and his servants. Um, and I think those two views of the aristocracy are really, really fighting it out for one another uh, in the, or fighting it out with one another in the relationship of Lady Catherine uh, to Darcy in the book, which is another really interesting wrinkle because of course she is his aunt. Right, right, right. Well, so shall we, shall we read some of this uh, of Mr. Collins? Yeah, well, Tom, why don't uh, you, uh, why don't you take it from the top of the proposal? Uh, so, uh, so, so just to set it up. So Mr. Collins says, uh, but before I'm run away, so he's proposing to her and he says, before I'm run away by my feelings on the subject, perhaps it would be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying and moreover for coming into Herefordshire with a design of selecting a wife, as I certainly did. Um, and Jane interjects the idea of Mr. Collins with all his solemn, solemn composure being run away by his feelings made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short, short pause he allowed in any attempt to stop him farther. And <laughs> right. So Elizabeth is already cracking up at the ridiculousness of this. Right. Right. Um, and, and the other pieces of like, what's so funny about this is that like Mr. Collins can't leave Hertfordshire, which is where the Bennets live without someone promising to marry him because Lady <laughs> Catherine just like she, she like, you know, dispatches him right, from, right. from where he lives at Huntsford. And she's like, go find a wife. I want someone to visit. And he's like, oh, go find a wife. He's, he's following the instructions of, of, uh, you know, the person that he really cares about. That's right. I mean, that's one of the great love affairs of this book. Is yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's a- Catherine is. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so so here's here's his speech explaining why he wants to get married. My reasons for marrying are, first, that I think it a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstances, like myself, to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I'm convinced it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honor of calling patroness. Twice she has condescended to give me her opinion, unasked too, on this subject. And it was but the very Saturday night before I left Hunsford, between our pools at Quadrille, while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mrs. de Berg's footstool, that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly. Choose a gentlewoman for my sake and for your own. Let her be an active, useful sort of person, not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. This is my advice. Find such a woman as soon as you can. Bring her to Hunsford and I will visit her. <laughs> Allow me, by the way, to observe my fair cousin that I do not reckon the notice and kindness of Lady Catherine de Berg as among the least of the advantages in my power to offer you will find her manners beyond anything I can describe. And your wit and vivacity, I think, must be acceptable to her, especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite. (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) Thus much for my general intentions in favor of matrimony. Maybe we should stop right there. (laughs) 
I mean, the, the hilarious thing is that he's proposing to Elizabeth, but he spends you know, fully 75% of the text that we've read so far talking about Lady Catherine. Well, I think I had, had, like, I hadn't thought about is, is this like interjection about while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mr. Footstool, which is, of course, Mr. Collins. Like, Mr. Collins is the footstool. Right. Well, but it's also it's 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 as though like you know the the uh, the specific experience interchange with Lady de Bourg is so burned into his memory. Yeah. It's like the first time he's ever thought of these thoughts. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's uh, and also the, just the irony of uh, I mean, if you if you said to someone today, "Why are you getting married?" You would think that the second reason, because I think it's going to make me happy. Yeah. would be the headline, right? That, right? that we have a very subjective notion of, you know, what marriage is all about. But but he starts off by saying, well, I think it would be good for me to set an example for everybody else. <laughs> 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 so, like, who, I'm, is somebody paying attention to you that I'm unaware of here? Right. And I think that the other part of the joke is that he's going to be the example of marriage. And like already he doesn't understand what it's about. Uh, and, and somehow he's going to be the one to model it you know, back home, um, I think is, you know, it's the other part of the joke. Uh, you know, so one word that I think is important in, in his speech there, twice she has condescended. Yeah. That word condescended in, right, which mostly has a negative sense for us, but but also has, you know, could have a positive sense. For Collins, it does. It's a mark of his visibility to the the powerful or the people he, you know, presumes to have a certain kind of power and and that's the in some ways that's the sum total of his of his motivation he's he's busy uh fulfilling the obligations of the entailment there's nothing he can do to not inherit longborn uh, even though he already has a place to live right i mean when mr bennett dies mr collins will have two estates. He'll have the living at Huntsford, which is the parish right. that's associated with, with Lady Catherine's landed estate. And he'll have uh, Longbourn, which now belongs to the Bennets, uh, which is another really interesting point in this, this sort of novel with all these people who are not going to have a place to live. We have this one man who has two houses. Uh, and there's no way that he's going to go live in Longbourn because he's so... Uh, oh, I mean, this no. is really a love speech to lady catherine not to elizabeth no he would he won't be able to make it <laughs> he would have nothing right. to do if he lived at longboard um, and and also notice this 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 delightful little detail uh he says to elizabeth you will find her manners beyond anything i can describe and your wit and vivacity i think must be acceptable to her <laughs> especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite i mean that's a that's a criticism right he's like you talk too much yes but when you meet lady lady catherine you're going to be so amazed by how awesome she is that yeah. you're going to shut you, up and you will and you will be quiet when <laughs> and you will be quiet damn it <laughs> well and the other thing right this is one of those examples of what you were pointing out at the beginning, Tom, of the narrator or of Austin herself intervening and uh, and giving a wink uh, or giving a um, uh, creating some depth or some doubleness to what we're reading. So this line, you will find her manners beyond anything I can describe. And that is true, right? Elizabeth. Right. That's right. But and, not in a good way. But, but not in the way that he thinks. And, and you know, that that like capacity of of the language that austin is is choosing is is what i think gives the book so much energy and and you know it's part of the comedy and it it, it, it sort of cues you in to the idea that the novel is happening on a lot of different levels all at once yeah, and it's just pleasurable as a reader to to you know see these things and uh -huh. be able to appreciate them yeah right? It, it, it's it's kind of a practice in, in expanding your imagination. And uh, I mean, there's, I remember one point in my life when I was, I was talking to somebody and I suddenly realized um, in order to understand what this person is saying, I have to hear what they're, what they're not saying, you know, the things that they're avoiding trying to say. Yes. And it was kind of a revelation. Like I needed to see everything upside down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but maybe, you know, all of us speak that way because it's hard to say the entire truth. 
it doesn't right and we only have you know the words that we're able to say in the time that we've got allotted and yet there's all the other things the other thing that this brings up for me too is the pleasure of rereading books and i think pride and prejudice is one of those books that people tend to go back to over and again because moments like this afford pleasure because if you read it the first time, right, we don't know yet that Elizabeth is going to have a very particular kind of relationship with Lady Catherine. But the right. second time through, right, you've got all of that in your mind and you can see Austin sort of pointing toward it. And it, I think it speaks to the way that a reading public uh, would have engaged novels during the period of Austin's life, but also an invitation to contemporary readers to, to read engage and to go back and read it again um which is like not something our reading practices tend to be about these days right it's not like we're well, let me go back and read that buzzfeed article again that's right yeah let's yeah there's no meditation yeah. there's no sense that there might be more there than, than you've been able to to discern at the moment right 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 Shall we fin- shall we finish uh, or re- read the the climax of the scene yes, please. So, so you would do so the honors What's that? You should do the honors. Okay. So, so Catherine is, or I'm sorry, um, Elizabeth is going to reject him. And this is a big deal because um, if she, uh, you know, if she does not get married, then she faces a very difficult fate of, you know, of poverty. Right. right. And so, so this is, this is a really big deal. But so, so she's going to reject him. Um, she, she says it once. And um, like, I, can I say this? Like, like some men who exist in the world, he has a hard time taking no for an answer. Yes. Right. So, um, so, I, and let, maybe we could just read from um, uh, the, the paragraph, his speech, when I do myself the honor. And you want to pick up Elizabeth? Hang on. I'm, I'm, let I think me the exchange is, is important. Yeah. Hang on. And obviously, for those of you who are listening to this, you know, um, you know, you get the most out of this if you're able to look at the text. Yeah, please do. Read along at home. Copies. Uh, so, Tom, you're going to read from, tell me again, when I, start. When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next. Uh, so that- it's uh, several paragraphs before the end, but it's coming up to the, to the, the, the great last exchange. Yes, I've got it. I've got it. Go ahead. Okay. When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next on the subject, I shall hope to receive a more favorable answer than you have now given me. Though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, the implication is that he will in the future, because I know it to be the established custom of your sex to reject a man on the first application. And perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character. Really, Mr. Collins, cried Elizabeth with some warmth, you puzzle me exceedingly. If what I have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement, I know not how to express my refusal in such a way as may convince you of its being one. You must give me leave to flatter myself. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) I'm sorry. You must give me leave to flatter myself. Uh, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my addresses is merely words, of course. My reasons for believing it are briefly these. It does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy your acceptance, or that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Burgh, and my relationship to your own are circumstances highly in my favor. And you should take it into further consideration that in spite of your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made to you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. As I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me, I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense, according to the usual practice of elegant females." I do assure you, sir, that I have no pretension whatever to that kind of elegance which consists in tormenting a respectable man. I would rather be paid the compliment of being believed sincere. I thank you again and again for the honor you have done me in your proposals, 
but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. It, it just strikes me that the those two speeches, like the the Mr. Collins' last speech and Elizabeth's last speech, um, and there, there's a little bit more, but but I think this is the this is the key, yeah. um, are are finely matched, right? That that they they echo each other. Yes. And that that he he finally you know reveals that he he thinks of women as elegant females mm-hmm. who say one thing, but they you don't really have to have to take seriously what they say. That's right. Um, because they're going to say yes eventually anyway. That's right. right? And um, and uh, Elizabeth's, you know, conception of a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. Right. And part of the reason that, that Collins believes that Elizabeth will say yes eventually is because I, I think that it, in some sense he doesn't understand her to have a meaningful choice. And if we consider the economic circumstances of Elizabeth's life, Right. right. With this proposal, she could secure the safety of her sisters. They won't have to move out of their home when their father dies. You know, Elizabeth is is staking a big claim in herself. And in doing so, you know, she's she's casting into the breach her sisters, um, at least one of whom she loves very dearly. And, right. and so this idea, right, that Collins has that Elizabeth has got to say yes is a is a sexist calculation. And also is is founded in the political economy uh, that Elizabeth lives her life, um, and and that she decides to assert uh, her her rationality, you know, in the face of those old feudal systems of of land inheritance, show us a heroine who is is breaking from her tribe to well, to be an individual. Yeah, well, so 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 I want to talk about that and, and the rationality. I mean, the thing that that strikes me, I mean, is his presumption simply a matter of the political economy that you know financially you'd have to be a fool to um, to turn down this offer? Yeah. But but there's also just like a deeper sense that females don't don't really make choices. That's right. right. That um, that that's uh, you you don't have to listen seriously what they say. That's right, unless they're Lady Catherine. Unless they're Lady Catherine, right? That's right. And so, and the other thing that's so telling about the scene is that Collins persists in this idea that not only is Elizabeth going to come around, but that if she doesn't, her her parents will force her to, and and that's that's the calculation that that Austin under undercuts with Mr. Bennett's character, uh, who you know who tells Elizabeth on the back end of this, you know. Your mother may want you to marry Mr. Collins, which she of course does. But if, but if, if you marry him, you know, I, you know, I, I will never see you again, even if your mother says the opposite. Um, And I'm, I'm not doing justice to the humor of the scene. Uh, And as funny as it is, it, it has underneath of it these these really hard calculations that that folks are faced with because of the the legal institutions we, you know, we're talking about. You know, there's this old theory that comedy is a way that we can say unpleasant truths in in a relatively pleasant way. Yes. Right. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is something. Um, I mean, well, so number one, you you absolutely. I mean, I, I, I so I've never seen the BBC version, but I, I can easily imagine uh, Steve Carell playing this character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So you can imagine Michael Scott making proposals. That, you know, it might look like. I think he makes a couple of proposals in the office that go like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Collins takes himself a lot more seriously, and and so there's a lot more danger here, right? Yeah. Uh, than than there would be in Michael Scott, but you have to imagine someone of that level of pomposity and and lack of self awareness, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is, and so so you know, we talked about the three proposals in the book, and you know, we're not going to have time to talk about all of them, but. But this is really important for for Elizabeth's character and for her her story arc because this is kind of her declaration of independence, and she's declaring independence not simply for Mr. Collins, but also as becomes very clear, you know, momentarily from her mother and from the the family. That's right. That's right. She she's setting out some stakes for her own life 
that are certainly different from the ones her parents have accepted. And they are also different from what her sisters set out for themselves, even though you know, we can sort of imagine them as being uh, part of the same horizontal generation, uh, and that they may have similar kinds of ideas about what marriage is for um, and, and how one might enter into marriage. Uh, and Elizabeth is, as I think, different, even from Jane, in, in the way she thinks about how to approach the institution. So I don't want to, um, this is, this is not quite the right analogy, but that, but there is a moment that is like the confrontation, um, Frederick Douglass's confrontation with Covey, uh, and the, the, uh, I mean, obviously in the stakes here are much less, even though they're still pretty severe than they are in, in Douglass's case, but there is this, you know, you ha- that she really has to imagine a world in which she's never going to get married. Yes. And, and she has to say, look, I would rather live in poverty than have to accept being married to this complete fool. That's right. Um, and that seems to have something to do with the, just the possibility of being uh, an autonomous actor. Yes. And it strikes me, the, the more I read this novel, the more I'm struck by all of the language of intellection that characters use when they're describing the ways they understand one another and the ways they understand themselves. There are some minor characters like Lydia who carry on or whose characterological development happens in the terms of passion. And then there are characters like Elizabeth who is aware of her own thought practices as she is grappling with these social problems like the fact that when her father dies she and her family won't have anywhere to live and and you know i think the analogy to douglas is is really salient and you know douglas is living in a very different system of of chattel slavery but it's it's nonetheless a system that has grown out of the society that of feudalism is yeah that practices coverture and primogeniture so you know there there are some I think some some deep you know institutional relations between you know what Douglas is up against and what and what Elizabeth Bennett is up against and I always remind myself remind my students and myself of this right it's it's a different thing when you're talking about Douglas you know who is a historical person who you know to some degree. Um, narrated his own life. And then a a writer like Austin, who is working entirely um, with fictional materials uh, and can, you know, has some latitude in in what she's um, working with because she's working purely in fiction. Right. Um, The stakes are lower. She's not, she's not worried about being killed. That's right. And, you know, and there are all sorts of, um, you know, comments to be made about what Douglas faced in publishing his narrative and the way that exposed him to recapture right. uh, after he had, after he had um, run away from slavery in Maryland. Um, and so, yeah, there are some, some big differences, but the, the role of knowing yourself in spite of these structures of power that would, would circumscribe one's life, you know, that, that, you know, that level of abstraction, I think there is continuity. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, when just, I just want to add one thing about, about this marriage thing that, right, that Elizabeth, you know, doesn't know at this point in the novel that, that she'll have another chance to get married in any acceptable way to her, right. given her own sense of self-respect. Um, but of course, Austin herself never got married, right? So, right. you know, it's easy to read these novels as being, you know, pro-marriage propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, it, you know, at the end of the day, they might not be, right? I mean, it might be, you know, maybe Jane herself, you know, never met the right guy. Mm-hmm. But we ought to at least be open to the possibility that maybe that was a choice. Yeah. That, uh, well, you know, that, that so, there might be a better life than being married. So um, Austin, Austin uh, was proposed to uh, and accepted. And then the next morning we can't. So my theory is all is all wrong. No, no, no. So. I think I think the theory is right. I think that she recanted. She accepted a proposal um, by a man named 
it was Harris was his first name, I think. Harris Big Withers, B-I-G-G hyphen W-I-T-H-E-R-S. Wait, his uh, name was Big Withers? Big Withers, right? And they're, they're <laughs> that right, right who joke, right? That she just she couldn't abide that last name. <laughs> <laughs> she had no choice. But no, she accepts him at first. And then the next morning she recants her acceptance. And and so I think, you know, there are there are biographical instances of Austin making, you know, these, these sorts of moves. Now what her, what her motivations were, you know, exactly. We can't know, but I think that some, some amount of being a rational creature, being a thinking being must have, must of course have played in uh, to her, to her choices. And, you know, I think it's also true. Just if you look at the plain history of, of what it meant to be a married woman in, uh, you know, early 19th century Britain and what one's childbearing uh, duties were in order to produce male heirs to, you know, continue these property dynasties. And when you add in the, the risks of, of having a baby during the period and the high, high rates of, of maternal mortality, um, you know, we might not have all the novels if she, if she had gotten married. And, and that's a, I think that's part of, of the direction of the novel, uh, the way it directs us to think about the, the well-examined life. In the, you mean, because there might be a tension between leading a life of strong practical attachments where you feel like you can do something really good and a life dedicated to seeing things as clearly as, as a person, as a human being could yeah. and articulating that. Yes. And that there might be two, two attractive models of the good life that are intention. Yes. And that sometimes like in the Collins example, that those, those are at cross purposes with one another. Uh, and then of course that, that gets resolved at the end of the novel with the proposal from, from someone who is Elizabeth's rich, <laughs> rich and otherwise acceptable, rich and otherwise acceptable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's Austin's pretty clear that this happy ending requires 30,000 pounds a year and a, a, you know, big, a big estate um, because that's ultimately what solves some of the problems that crop up uh, toward, yeah, toward yeah. the end of the novel. Um yeah. So, so yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's no, um, I think there's no world in which Austin is not thinking about money as, as essential for comedic endings and the, the, like the one she imagines in Pride and Prejudice. Or, or just the realism that, that the romanticism that we see and that, that in a way attracts us to, you know, because we, we love these stories because, you know, they're attachments and then they get broken up and then they come back together. But, but the, the underlying realism may be the, the deeper, the deeper message. Yes. And yeah. I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of scholarship that, that really pays attention to, you know, how much money is in play, you know, what are the relationships of wealth to characters, motivations, and Caroline Bingley in, in this novel is, I think, the exemplar of that mercenary sensibility that's really using marriage, thinking about marriage as a way of consolidating money. Yeah, um, yeah. She's, they're, they're, they're hedge fund traders, except yeah. that marriage is their means of uh, investing and, right? That's right. Uh, so, so I, I want to say a couple more things, and then I have a final thing I want to ask you about. I mean, I was just thinking about the way that you know, so, so some of the authors that that um, you know my students are reading in class, uh, you know, thinking about this uh, roots of political economy class, especially, uh, you know, Adam Smith, I think would would very well understand what Austin is saying. Right? Yeah. That, that he's also very attuned to the realities of um, of money and what what are the what's the economic substructure that's necessary for having the kind of life that. And many of us try to try to avoid thinking about these ugly realities, mm -hmm. but one of the things that you can learn from Smith, and as I think you can learn from Austin, if you if you really take her seriously, is that that you can't avoid those things. But you're right. But he and Smith, or he and Austin, I think, would be sort of more or less on the same page. Like the world is messed up. We try to do the best that we can. Um, Karl Marx, I think, would see the same thing, and and but would flip the entire narrative and say, look, this is why this world is so screwed up, and and 
anyone with a heart has to rebel. Right. Right. And I think that one could understand that reaction as well, because for all the happy ending of this book, there are many things that should, I mean, somebody has to get married to Mr. Collins, right? It's, it's poor Charlotte. And that's, uh, sort of a, a human, um, sadness, I think from, from Austin's point of view. Yeah. And Um, not to mention all of the other, you know, there, there's a whole world of people who are not, you know, able to participate in this conversation that I think Austin is aware of, but doesn't highlight. That's right. I mean, are you thinking, Tom, about the the servants who? Yeah, the servants, the, um, the poor, right? I mean, this is this is a time in which there's an increasing number of people who have been displaced by the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. and who, you know, have really horrific lives in ways that even getting married to Mr. Collins, like, isn't in the same realm, like, the same magnitude of horribleness. Right, right. Um, and, you know, as, as Austin's writing the novel, right, across across the ocean um, in a, a former British colony institutions of, of chattel slavery are, are still, um, right. you know, very much in practice um, in the United States. Um, and, you know, in Austin, you can't write a comedy about that. You can't. And that's why Austin writes Mansfield park, which maybe we should talk about it in a different, in a different conversation, but you know, those things start to become, more visible to Austin as she gets older, right? She's writing Pride and Prejudice as a fairly young woman. And as she gets older, I think the the realities of, of social life in Britain um, and, and across the ocean in the United States become very um, real for her. Her, you know, her brothers uh, serve in the Navy. Um, she does have a certain kind of global sensibility even though she is typically read as, you know, the the author of the most of, domestic of, of domestic manners, right? In a, yeah. in a small village, writing about three or four families, which is something each, at one point she says about herself. Um, get, but of course, we know that Austin is saying one thing and and doing doing another. Else. Yeah. Yes. So 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 we need to to wrap up here pretty soon. I, I have one more line that I feel personally insulted by. Okay. That I need you to to tell me um, if I should be personally insulted okay. or, or how I should think about. <laughs> So this is a line that comes at the very end of, uh, it's, it's uh, chapter 54, so near the end of the book. Okay. And it's a conversation that, that uh, Elizabeth is having with Jane. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it seems a little bit like a throwaway line. It's, it's, it's almost too good for the context, like the context doesn't quite fit. Yeah. This is the very last, uh, do you know where I am? I do, no, the, I don't have it, but I think we want to- I'll read it and you'll, and you'll, you'll recognize it. Okay. Um, Jane says, but why should you wish to persuade me that I feel more than I acknowledge? And Elizabeth answers, that is a question which I hardly know how to answer. We all love to instruct, though we can teach only what is not worth knowing. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I just can't help but thinking that line, we all love to instruct, but we can only teach what is not worth knowing. Uh, That's, that's a, that's a slam at professors, isn't it? I mean, that she's talking trash about Sarah, she's talking trash about you. She's on, she's on to all of us. Well, this is like, you know, no one's safe from Austin's satire, uh, which is, which is why it's so good. Uh, Right. I mean, she's, she's making some deliberations or she's, she's making some um, conclusions about how human knowledge practices work and the way we hang on to certain things that we think that we know. So would, would you explain that to me? So read, can you read the line again? We all love to instruct, though we can teach only what is not worth knowing. Right. So the idea, right, being that teaching can only happen when we are not hanging on to the thing that we're teaching as if it is that like shared social knowledge that she is sending up at the beginning of the novel, right? Uh-huh. With the, you know, that we've got to, we've got to let go of our own assumptions and, and our own first impressions. If we're really going to, if we're really going to teach, otherwise we're just instructing. Um, we're doing, you, okay, know. But you might not be able to, I mean, you, you might have to start with the first impressions, right? You couldn't go straight to the, to whatever the, the deeper knowledge is. Yeah. So, I mean, what's your take on the line? Well, I mean, um, I mean, I think that, that you have to distinguish between instructing and teaching something worth knowing. I think instructing means you can teach people a bunch of facts, but, uh, you know, we can all memorize and that that's what we're trained to do in high school and perhaps increasingly more and more in in college. But, um, that I think she's trying to distinguish that kind of 
teaching, which is really just conveying information from a, a deeper sense of, um, which I think is the theme of the whole book, which is self-knowledge yes. that I can't, I can't teach you self-knowledge. I, I can gesture towards it. I can sort of give you examples of it. I can, um, as it were, I mean, sometimes I think about in, in class and I'm trying to do a dance that I hope the students imitate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think one time I described myself as the Richard Simmons of class, um, which is maybe a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> but, uh, but you, the things, the facts that you can convey are not the most important thing that a human being needs to know about the world. Yeah. I think the way I would say it in the context of the novel itself is that it's, it, it's part, you got to know the plot, right? You got to know how, how the events unfold and you have to know the names of the characters and you have to have apprehend their relationships to one another, right? The sort of information right, of the right. plot. But you also, to, to really know a book like Pride and Prejudice, to know it is to also be aware of the way it's working on you and the way you are working on it and and the way it's it's raising particular kinds of, of, of intellectual engagement to one's attention. Uh, and these things are, we do these things all the time. And the novel both, both um, describes the way a character does this, right? Elizabeth says, until then, I never knew myself. But yeah. the novel is also working us through our own, our own thinking about the ways that we know ourselves, And, and, you know, the model of Elizabeth should, shouldn't distract us from the way these uh, these practices are a play in our own lives. We all are making first impressions. We all are, you know, trying to, to gather information all the time. And what we do with it um, is, I think, a lot of the, the substance of what Austin wants us to consider. Yeah, in a way, it goes back to, you know, you see it in the very first line of the book, that it looks like it's a universal statement, but it turns mm -hmm. out to be a projection, right, an interpretation that is unaware of the fact that that it's it's speaking out of a human anxiety and a human need mm -hmm. for something that is set up by a particular political in a political context and given the the structures of power in that society yes um and that but that's you know to understand how and why we do that um that's not something that you can learn by memorization it's something you learn by realizing that in some sense you are yourself doing it that's right and and in that sense you know, reading novels and reading reading them in the way I think that we're advocating uh, is is the project of becoming liberally educated, and it goes on. I mean, it, it right. you know it goes it, it it goes on the next time we read Pride and Prejudice or or you know Frederick Douglass or whatever whatever it is that we're going to read or reread again. Right, that that there's some that we're doing work on ourselves. Right, we're trying to to be more clear about ourselves, and we're using the book as a kind of instrument to to try to force ourselves because it's somehow we can't we can't just will ourselves to do it. That's right. right. It takes the kind of you know the dialectical engagement with the ideas of others, whether that's across time or in person, to become who we are. Right. Sarah, that's a great place to end. Um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, you've persuaded me that I should read the book again. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping to read something like Thucydides where a lot of people get killed, but uh, this, this is almost as good. <laughs> so, uh, so I look forward to our next conversation. It's been fun. Um, audience, if you have comments or questions uh, or you hate what we said, please tell us. Um, we, we would love to hear it. So uh, thanks a lot, Sarah. We'll, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in.